G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined, as always, by my lovely co-host, RD. Today is Monday, another Monday, the 28th of August, and our topics this week are the intergenerational report spells out Australia's future up until 2063. And Australia's transition to a cashless society raises some concerns around financial exclusion, privacy, and safety. Now, we're going to have a lot to talk about on these two topics, I'm sure. Of course, then we have our, uh, we have our two ticks town talk in between. And then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with Ardit. And we'll finish off, as always, with the Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that... Over the last few weeks, we wanted to shout out some of the countries from around the world where our listeners are located. And this week, we wanted to say salam to our listeners in Iran, Persia. Salam, Ardit. How are you this week? Salam, DK. Oh, I'm traveling, uh, traveling well. I've been up to uh, Sydney visiting the uh, Rellos up there. Uh, had a nice sort of drive up. Didn't really do a hell of a, a lot, you know, just just helped out was up, uh, up with the parents and that and just did a bit of a helping out with the, you know, some gardening things around the, the houses, uh, around the houses, around the house. Um, and yeah, nothing, nothing particular there. Although one thing that was, and for people who are on, who gave me on the R slash Australian subreddit, I'll, I'll post these pictures on our, our weird Wednesday. I had taken a. They've got a uh, uh, an oval not too far from them where you can look out and you can see Manly, Manly over on the the northern suburbs, one of the destinations yep. uh, for the, the ferries. A lot of people know about it, and it's got a it's got a good inter, a interview, a good view over the um, uh, peninsula that goes out from from there. I took a photo. I posted it on our Monday poster environment uh, poster environment day, and I had a look at it and I thought, "Oh, what's that? That's a bit of a funny bit of green light." And I thought it might be just one of those digital artifacts that you sometimes get on photos. I'd taken two photos, and there's the same phantasmic green glow in the other one but in a different position now i suspect what i'm seeing is some sort of um smoke that's maybe been drifting across and caught in the morning light because it was a it was a morning photo um and somehow has refracted green or I have caught some sort of extra-dimensional ghost <laughs> or, or, or spirit travelling across the Manly Peninsula. <laughs> it was a weird little thing. Like, I looked at, oh god, what's that? Damn it! I should have should have picked the other photo and looked at that. And thought, oh, that's actually a bit freaky. It it uh, actually looks like one of those ones that you see that someone. And, and this is, I think, this is what I'll sort of claim on the uh, on our weird Wednesday in two days that it, it's it's po suggests that it's possibly a a ghost or a spirit or something. Uh, 
it's an unusual little green thing. So, yeah, that that was my little bit of a uh, from a not so from a fairly ordinary week to sort of thinking, oh, I've got a mystery. You definitely do because I saw your photo, um, and it's a lovely photo, and I actually didn't notice that I just thought it was uh, sort of like a reflection or something like that. But after you've said this, I've gone and had another look at it. Oh, you've got oh, yep. I've got it sitting it? here in front of me. It's very weird. You're right. It looks like I'm sure it's it's a, a digital, you know, it's like a camera trick of the light or something like that. But it is very a bit uh, uh, a bit sort of spooky, I guess. It's sitting Wait over. Wait till you um, see the second photo. Because it's it's that sort of like oh that's a trick of life, except it's a different shape in a different position. Ah, really? Yeah. Wow. Because it's it's sort of it appears to be hovering over yes uh, <laughs> Smledley Point. There's a, a I, I think they're apartment blocks. Um, they're two like circular apartment blocks there on the on the on the tip. Of uh, of the Manly Peninsula, the little peninsula that pops out there, it's quite iconic. You go past it on the ferry and things like that. Yep. Um, it's aggressively sort of like sixties, seventies sort of style. Um, it appears to be sort of hovering over that, but it might be a trick. It might be something actually in the uh, the, the national park behind it. I don't know, but it is quite interesting. Uh, it is weird, isn't it? I'm glad you had a, a look at it. It's a bit weird, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because behind that, kind of if you draw a line behind the, uh, the apartment block there, you can see in the distance there are some buildings, and those buildings, and this is... is the quarantine station. Oh. <gasps> Oh, so maybe huh. there's a bit of bit of supernatural spooky stuff going on. Now I'm not one to to really believe in the supernatural, but this is a pretty cool, pretty weird thing. So I'm looking forward to Wednesday to see the other photo, yes. see what's going on. It is a weird thing. <laughs> so yeah, what you, what have you been up to? I um, what have I been up to? I went to footy last week uh, i watched the north queensland cowboys absolutely demolish the uh red cliff dolphins in their nrl uh oh. took my son uh to brisbane to, to suncorp stadium and we watched the footy and it's always such a great time out watching uh and seeing the support for, for regional Queensland teams in Brisbane and talking to some of the supporters, there was a lot of people that travelled, uh, like like us, quite a long way to, to go and see them. So that's always mm. really cool um, to see, see people getting out, going to do things like that. Um, and, of course, it's always nice to, to spend a bit of time with, with my kids. Um, yeah. And things like that. So lots of new experiences, uh, lots of lots of um, shouting and, and cheering, and just generally having a good time. Uh, hopefully, you know these are the sort of memories that he'll remember as he gets older. Uh, I know I have some fond memories of my dad in, in similar situations. So um, that's what it's all about, I guess. Speaking yeah. of intergenerational 
situations. Oh. Uh, <laughs> the inter- intergenerational report has been released by the Treasury, and we're going to go through some of it. I'm going to caveat this just up front. We're not, this topic is huge, and this report is quite comprehensive and goes into quite a lot of things. Um, we're not, we do not have time or the inclination to really go into this in, in, in too much detail. But what we're going to do is we're going to take, pick out a couple of things that we think are kind of worth discovering at a surface level. If you do want to read um, the whole report or, or like have a bit more of a understanding of exactly what's going on, I would urge you to go to the r slash Australian sub where I've posted uh, an ABC article, which we will be referencing. Um or you can go to the Treasury website, which you can download the report in full. It's treasury.gov.au. Now, that out of the way, uh, let's get stuck in. So, the possible future report of Australia has been laid out by the government's intergenerational report, which paints a picture of the nation that's going to be looking older, living longer, better paid but also has some major workforce and climate challenges. So nothing new, <laughs> nothing we didn't know, <laughs> I think. Um, though the Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers says the intergeneration report is a compass pointing to Australia's current course and it's not a crystal ball. And I think that's worth remembering as we go through this. This is the current government's expectations of where things are going to be based on their extrapolation of the data, their predictions for the future. You know, so take all of this with a grain of salt, but it is pretty generalized. And I think reasonably speaking, they've kind of, you know, they're talking about pretty general ideas. And I think they're probably more right than they are wrong. But let's go through it. Uh, it sets down some clear opportunities and obstacles over the, for the country over the next 40 years with five major forces shaping the future. They are an aging population, climate change, a shift to a caring economy. We'll come back to that in a minute. Fragmentation in the global order and an explosion in digital technologies. I feel like we've heard that last one for the last 25 years, but... Yeah. If Australia stays on its current course, there are serious challenges for the government budget. The report forecasts deficits every year to 2063, which would make the most recent surplus the only one delivered for 50 years. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> Maybe this is just Treasurer Jim Chalmers tooting his own horn. We'll see. Uh, however, Jim Chalmers has said that the report will not trigger an overhaul of the government's taxes or its spending. Instead, he has uh, prosecuted bite-sized tax reforms on the edges of the budget for now. What that means, we don't know. Uh, and a focus on growing productivity toward off future economic woe. That, uh, Deet, I can, I can, I can hear your eyes rolling into the back of your head. That is bingo eyes for and teeth grinding. <laughs> that is bingo for uh, uh, you know. Don't panic, taxpayers. We're not going to ta- we're not going to do anything rash here. But 
we'll stay the course and we'll see what happens. He said that the government has begun to walk down a path of greater reform. Again, what that specifically means, we're not really sure. Uh, he did say that the report laid out a future we can be optimistic about, but not complacent about. And I think that's probably a fair statement. Um, Shadow Treasurer Angus Taylor decried the report as a plan for increased taxes, increased spending, and a bigger Australia. There are deficits as far as the eye can see and not a solution in sight. So bold words from the Shadow Treasurer. Maybe when he's, if he's Treasurer, when he's Treasurer, uh, I don't know he will be so bold as to say those things, but we'll see. <laughs> I'll take that bet. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy being the opposition. Yep. Australians are living longer and are in fuller health for longer, which is absolutely fantastic. And the life expectancy at birth is projected to rise from 81.3 years to 87 years for men and 85.2 years to 89.5 years for women by 2063. So, the, you know, that's a fair bump in, in 40 years. These improvements come at a time of slowing population growth with people delay having children and having fewer children in previous generations. Australia's fertility rate has remained below what we call the replacement rate, which is 2.1 babies per woman. Uh, and it's been that low since the 1970s. And it's expected that it's not going to increase anytime soon. With people living longer and fewer babies, the median age of Australians will be 4.6 years older by 2063 than it is today, meaning the median age of the average Australian will be 43.1 years old. Almost a quarter of Australians will be over the age of 65 by 2063. And there will be three times as many people over 85 as there is today. So this has a pretty big implication in terms of healthcare services, in terms of caring, in terms of pension, superannuation, all of those sorts of things. So we'll put a pin in that for a minute and we'll continue on. Immigration is a big uh, part that we can use to help increase Australia's overall population, but it's going to make up a smaller share than predicted of the 40.5 million Australians in 2063 than it does today. And those migrants will be older on average and have fewer children than they do today as well. The demographic shifts have major consequences in shaping Australia's economy and the workforce at large. A smaller percentage of Australians will be in work. More Australians will depend on the healthcare and care services. And there will be more opportunities in work for underrepresented groups to offset the effect of an aging workforce. So it's not all doom and gloom. Mm. It also means Australia's trend away from uh, manual industries towards a care economy will only pick up pace as time progresses. The report forecasts the care and support workforce will have to double in size to meet the demand by 2050 in a quote-unquote planning challenge that will require more training pathways and better pay that is more reflective of the task. So if you're thinking about upskilling or changing industries, 
going into the caring and support workforce is probably a safe bet long term. What about mining and global warming? The report lays out that Australia is set to benefit from the global transition to net zero carbon emissions. As we've spoken over the last couple of weeks, we've spoken about green hydrogen, solar, a bunch of uh, exciting industries. But of course, Australia is already the leading up the leading exporter of lithium and has vast reserves of lithium, nickel, zinc, and bauxite, uh, all essential minerals for renewable technologies. And swaths of Australian land are yet to be fully explored for critical minerals, meaning there is likely more rich veins to tap, providing opportunities for mining sector that need to get out of coal and gas. Sure. No more yep. no more coal and gas, but that doesn't does, doesn't mean that mining's going to go away. Shifting to trade, Australia has improved the flow of goods and services, labor and technologies by reducing barriers to trade and decades of economic growth and improved living standards have ridden on the back of opening the nation to the international market. But the report says the future prosperity of the nation will be influenced by evolving geopolitics and ensuring supply chains are resilient to future shocks. That is, by reducing Australia's reliance on its major trading partner, China. China. Uh, We all know this. Again, this isn't something new. We saw this during the global uh, pandemic that we all recently lived through. Uh, Going to the shops and seeing nothing on the shelves is a pretty frightening prospect. So that is something we've seen it happen before. We know this is a problem. And I think we need to, I think the West in general is waking up to the idea that we need to bring some of this manufacturing back, uh, back and do it domestically, which we are seeing with, with some of the military stuff that we've spoken about over the last few weeks. Um, it the report also issues a warning that the future global economy is probably going to be more fragmented. It's going to result in rival trading blocks that, and that fragmentation could complicate not only climate action but future trade, uh, international markets, all of those sorts of things. It has a large domino effect. Well, specifically, they don't. Uh, directly mention it, but I think they're referring to the BRICS um, yep. group, which is Brazil, uh, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Um, I, I'm not, you know, this may be a topic for another time, but I don't think BRICS is as formidable as I think a lot of people are, are, are considering it to be, but. It is important to remember that there are there are other rising powers in the world that want to change, you know, the quote unquote rules based world order. They want to get away from the US dollar. So there are things like that. The unipolar world that we all grew up in at this point um, mm. is looking more and more like it's not necessarily coming to an end, but. Uh, there's big changes that are going to happen. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, push BRICS aside so um, cavalierly. Uh, perhaps that's a bit of a bit of hyperbole. And 
I do think there's going to be a, a long way before they get their own own currency. However, as a economic force, I think it's definitely um, already being something to be reckoned with and considered. And as a symbolic uh, grouping of nations against the traditional uh, Western-dominated uh, position of the world, I think it's I think it's highly important from that, that symbolic sense. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I, I think the biggest problem with BRICS and the reason I was a bit sort of flippant over its control and and potential in the future is the countries that make up BRICS in my mind don't make sense. Um, yes, that's the problem. That's a, you're. A, a, I'm sorry, I'm jumping in there, but you're a hundred percent correct. That's the that's the basic flaw in the construction. It's convenient in many ways, but when you get down to the nitty gritty and do these uh, nations agree on some basic economic and political uh, concepts, they don't, and that's no, uh, that's, so that's an issue. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them despise each other. Yep. Um, you know, China and India are not friends. Uh, that yep. they are continuously, literally fighting each other in the mountains. Um, as an example, Russia and China aren't exactly friends. They're more like uh, acquaintances that work together when it suits each other you know mm. brazil is kind of just throwing in there south africa i don't even know why they're part of it did they just want an s on the end of the s on the 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 no they they had uh, it used to be it used to be brick um b-r-i-c and as part of their their structure I, I was reading something just recently and it was talking about how China is essentially the economic arm of uh, BRICS, whilst Russia is the political arm. And uh, part of the Russian machinations were to create BRICS as a global force needed to have some representation from the continent of Africa. And uh, South Africa was invited by all the other four members, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, to become part of BRICS and accepted. So it was uh, essentially a marriage of convenience. But, you know, I mean, South Africa is also very rich in, in, in minerals and political influence in that, uh, that continent. So it did, it did make sense that they were the ones in, that were invited. But that's my understanding of how the uh, lowercase s became an uppercase s in BRICS. Yeah, but see, like again, that just that idea of ah, we want someone here. How about you? You know what I mean? Like that just doesn't seem to be the way you build uh, a strong alliance, a multi uh, multinational agreement because we wanted someone in a specific location. I, I don't know. the The whole thing to me is just thrown together. Uh, to try and compete with uh, the US and kind of annoy the the World Bank and the World Trade Organization and things like that. It's a bit like the Warsaw Pact was to NATO. Um, mm. it, you know, it, the, all of those were Soviet countries. Uh, 
did it, you know, <laughs> it, it's kind of just like, well, if you're going to have a club, I'm going to have a club too. So, it, it, you know, the, the bricks itself, I don't think, I don't take it particularly seriously because it doesn't make sense on paper. It doesn't make sense in the real world. It just sounds good on paper, I should say. Um, but, but the idea that China, Russia, uh, are really the, the 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 leaders of this, and Brazil to an extent is sort of on board. Um, I would think India in a heartbeat would, and even probably Brazil would drop it if if it came to you know if push came to shove. But um, the fact that BRICS is even something we're talking about shows you that the U.S. international soft power is waning. And that is something that we need to be aware of. And that is something that is going to shape our future um, in the next 40 years. Um, it is. Which is it's, it's, sorry, go on. Which is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm basically trying to bring us, this back to Let me do that for you as I was about <laughs> to uh, just go in. It does indicate the uh, fragmentation in the global order that we're talking about where it was essentially uh, – U.S. Empire top-down uh, order. We've got uh, you know a, a powerful competitor coming to this, so we do see that um, fragmentation in the the global order. The uh, change in uh, the demand for minerals for for climate change that starts to put Australia into a position of having to serve. You know, the US is is a customer, but it's also going to have customers in different economic uh, blocks that might even be completely separate to to BRICS. You'll know, have different um, customers in in Southeast South Asia, Southeast Asia. Uh, the BRICS uh, populations as well. China, um, I don't know so much about India, but China is starting to experience that um, shift to an older, uh, a, a slightly older uh, population base, which we're experiencing here as well. So there's going to be some uh, you know, symbiosis between how something like, say, Australia comes up with innovations to do the caring economy that may or may not get shared with China, and there may be some reciprocal um, developments uh from from china from other other ones so i think it i think it does actually tie in nicely to this intergenerational report that actually gets a few of those factors all nicely squeezed together in my opinion yeah india's population is reasonably young um their life expectancy for men is about 70 so it's not great, okay. and their their population is reasonably young um, compared to, say, China. So it's not just – I think this should be said, and basically, as you did, it's not just Australia that's going to be facing this ageing population shift in both the demographic and the culture that comes with that, but also um, how our economy and – uh, how you know healthcare services, caring services, all these things that we sort of briefly touched on before. How all yep. those things are going to work, and and 
grow in, in a in a an area of the economy that's never really been you know it's sort of it, it is getting bigger and bigger over the last few years but in the past it's not been a major chunk but now it's going to be and of course we're not the only country that's uh having this issue japan very famously has been going through this uh for for a number of years um and they're they've they're skewed a lot harder than us towards towards the aging end of the population, um, and of course they've doubled down on on robots and smart technologies and stuff like that to to fill, fill the gap, which we may need to do. And the good thing is Japan's already done a lot of the hard work there. Um, yes, that's what that's what I was meaning about some of the uh, re- reciprocal technology. Yeah, and. There's definitely opportunities there um, in that because we've also got to remember we've got a lot of uh, – I think there's going to be in the future, I think you're going to see a lot more immigration specifically targeting people for that caring economy. Yep. Um you know, both healthcare, but also aged care type, type, um, you know, and and not just literally people that work in old folks' home and stuff like that, or nurses and things like that. I mean, more like you know, other um, allied health professionals like physios, like um, occupational therapists, um, yep. speech therapists, things like that. I think you're going to see this industry get a lot bigger as well, which we are starting to see already. And I think it's, you know, really trending in that direction. So as as much as it probably sounded like I was joking earlier, if you are listening to this and you are considering uh, a change in occupation or industry or you're young and you're thinking, maybe what should I do uh, when I graduate high school or, or, or whatever? I think moving into that industry is future proof, you know. You know, they, they in this report they sort of briefly touched on uh, the quote unquote explosion of digital technologies, and there was they're sort of focusing on AI and and automation and things like that. Yep. You're not going to lose your job if you're a carer or a nurse or something like that uh, by uh, Chat GBT or a robot. It's not going to happen because people want to be cared for by other people. Um, so yeah, I, you know I, you, you you may be supplement your role may be supplemented with some of these new technologies, but I don't think you're going to lose your job to a robot or something like that. Um, not for a little while, at least. Maybe one day, but um, well, probably not- probably one day. Yeah, but look, probably not, one day. Not for a little while, and you're actually um, going to uh, learn a, a set of look. I know a couple of people involved with, uh, you know, particularly with uh, looking after elder care, and uh, you know the bottom line is uh, a lot of the times they do get treated pretty. Uh, I think, yeah, but treated a bit like crap, uh, probably because there's a, a a skill level and a a softness in people who want to go into that vocationally. However, to build on what you were talking about, considering that as a career, in the same way that people would go into McDonald's, and you knew you were going to get, you know, the 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 shit jobs first off, and you know the 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 rubbish um, shifts and that, but if you were looking at it as a structure in which you could learn 
some management skills, uh, some abilities to to build similar businesses, uh, to look at the suppliers to that industry and realize where you might be able to sell shovels to the miners to use that um, that old sort of uh, truism or, or metaphor. For somebody who is prepared to do a little bit of the drudge stuff but learn, it's a, it's a massively growing industry that has a lot of opportunity. And, you know, I, I think that's a reasonable thing to consider. And as you said, it's going to be a long time before the, the robots are doing everything. It's also going to be a long time before people accept having a lot of very, what can be very personal interactions when you're being cared for and needing to be cared for done by something mechanical. So I, I, tend, to, uh, I tend to back up what you're saying there as a suggestion, DK. Yeah, I think, I think it is worth you know, being mindful, especially if we are talking about someone that, you know, and our, and our hypothetical person is, say, you know, school leaver age or something close to that. I think it's, it is prudent for someone of that age to be considering the fact that they may very realistically uh, lose income or opportunities to either AI programs or... Um, a, a literal mechanical robot. Uh, and, and look, it's going to be, you know, it, without going down this rabbit hole too far, it, it is going to be a lot of the, the more menial tasks, the more low skill stuff that no one really wants to do very much anyway. So there's not, there's not a huge uh, uh, issue there, at least initially. But I think, you know, as this ball starts rolling, we're going to see it start creeping in. It'll start uh, as Jim Chalmers said, start taking nibbles from from around the outside, but slowly and slowly it's going to creep in. So I think if you are, if there's someone, you know, if they're worried about this, moving into a caring type situation, um, becoming like a counselor even or or a psychologist, um, uh, that is going to really future proof your. Um, career long term compared to say if you were a truck driver uh yep. which very realistically is there's a very high chance that that's going to not be a job anymore um probably in our lifetime uh there's going to be a point where it just doesn't make sense anymore you don't need to have people in the loop um the systems are good enough so so you know what's going to be cheaper paying someone or spending a hundred thousand dollars on a special robot truck. It's a no brainer long-term. And I think we all kind of know that, but yeah. it is, it, look, I, I think what we got to take away from the report is generally optimistic. Australia is called the lucky country for a damn good reason. It's a great place. It's a great country. Our standard of living is exceptionally high, Yep. Things are probably going to be tough for for a few years, but the future long term is looking reasonably good. But things are going to change as they always do. Yep, yep. Look, you you weren't wrong about saying that's a complex topic. I was just looking at the notes that I had for uh, some of the other topics to cover, and I thought, wow, we could we could talk a long time about that. But uh, 
I think that your positive note to finish off on is is a good spot. Yeah, I'm trying not to say too much because this is such a can of worms. It goes. Oh, this yeah. report goes into everything basically. Um, so it is. We're going to have to probably move on. But again, I do urge the listeners to to if you do want to read the report or, or want some further information, uh, remember go to treasury.gov.au to get a copy of the report you can go through it yourself um and of course it's sometimes it's fun to see what predictions they're going to get wrong um mm. as much as it is fun to see what they're going to get right yep exactly i think it might be time for our two ticks town talk all right for this week's two ticks town talk i'm mainly using wikipedia and aussietowns.com.au for my reference sources today all right, we travel down to my current state of Victoria, travel over to the western part in the region known as the Wimmera, um, surrounded by merino grazing and the Wimmera wheat belt. Today's town is Neil in Victoria. It's about halfway between Melbourne and Adelaide on the western highway. Got a population of uh, just shy of 1,800. Formerly recognised traditional owners for the area in Nil site are the Wachubalak, uh, Jadwa, Jadwa Jali, Wagai, and Jupajik nations. A couple of factoids about Nil before we get on to what caught my attention was there's a major tornado destroyed much of it in 1897. Oh, wow. Is, yeah, I know. I know. I, I, it's not something you tend to hear we don't, about. Yeah, we no. don't have a lot of, of tornadoes in Australia. Nope. Not Very at all. rare. Yeah. Yeah. Now, like, yeah, that, that, one, that one did surprise me. Uh, it was the first Victorian town after uh, Melbourne to get electricity. And uh, electric lighting went in in 1892. Uh, Neil Airport, uh, just a bit outside the town, served as a major RAF training base during the Second World War, instructing over 10,000 aircrew between 1941 and 46. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Neil's also between two deserts. The Little Desert National Park, the Little Desert and the Big Desert, the, the imaginatively <laughs> named Little Desert and Big Desert. So uh, one's, one's, a, one's a national park, the other one's a wilderness park. I'm not quite sure what the difference is. But basically the Little Desert National Park, um, 132,000 hectares, uh, second largest national park in Victoria, and not quite a true desert despite its its name. It gets about 400 mil of rainfall each year and has a whole lot of uh, fall, flora and fauna, about 220 bird species and 670 plant species. The big desert, Wilderness Park to the, the north, is a little bit, well, it's it's a desert. Uh, got arid areas of sandstone, dunes, mallee scrub, mallee scrub and uh, heath. And the, uh, what was it? I like this phrase. The infertility of the terrain has ensured that it's not been substantially altered by Europeans. Uh, 
<clears throat> fauna, they, the fauna you get up there is lizards, snakes, birds, pygmy possum, hopping mouse, and other small mammal species. So, yeah, that's a, a couple of uh, factoids and a bit of a situational thing for, for Neil. Now, well, yeah, I, I just want to ask, because I was really, when you first said Neil, I was like, that's a bloke's name. Who's Neil? But I, for our listener that might be thinking the same thing, I think it should be said. It's oh, it's yeah. spelt N H I L L. Good point. It's, it's not. It's not Neil. <laughs> it's pronounced that way, but it's not named after a bloke called Neil. Thank or you. Is, or is or is it, I don't know. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Named after a bloke called Neil by someone who couldn't spell it. Yeah. No, <laughs> you're com- you're completely correct. And look, I I saw there was two pronunciations, and to be honest, well, I haven't been there, and one of the pronunciations didn't set- make sense to me. The other one um, rang a bell from what I'd uh, had heard. So, if I've got it wrong, apologies to the the people of of Neil. Um, I'll correct it next episode if if necessary. Uh, if you didn't get to me before, then it's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but to what? Why now? What caught my eye? Now, one of the one of the joys of doing the two ticks town talk is just being surprised by little things. I like to sort of have a bit of a uh, browse over the maps and see what sort of might ring a bell or sort of think, oh, that's in an odd place. I'll have a bit of a, a look up online and see what it was. What surprised me here was Dick-a-Dick. Now, does that ring any <laughs> bells for you? No, no. Dick-a-Dick, traditional name, uh, 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 Lavanya or Jumgun, sorry, Jumgum Jun Nuke or Jungun Jinuki was a, uh, born around about 1934 to 1933. Oh, sorry, around 1934. Yep, was an Australian Aboriginal tracker and cricketer. He was a Wachubalok man who spoke the Wagai language in the Wimmera region. He was a member of the first Australian cricket team to tour England in 1868 and was wow. one of the most well-known Aborigines of the 19th century. That's what I thought. Dick-a-Dick's a good name. I mean, that's, that's a, I, I that's, know he's got the, uh, the, the traditional name, but Dick-a-Dick's a ripper of a name. Yeah. Nah, yeah, Definitely. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to stick in your memory if he walks yeah. up and says, "Get out, I'm dick and dick." You, what? Yeah, bloody <laughs> oath! <laughs> I love that. And then when I saw that he was a member of the first Australian cricket team to tour England, that really caught my eye. It was something like um, I don't know if I even bothered writing it down, but something like ten years later that there was an officially organised representative in um, inverted quotes, team from Australia. But 10 years before that, there was a cricket team of Australian Aborigines who toured England and Dickadick, the bloke from up around this, uh, up around Neil, he was a member of that. 
Now, That's he cool. was and that must oh, have taken them so I, long to get there to, I, to England. Well, I don't have the answer to that, but it would uh, look, there was a whole lot of um, God, there's a whole lot of things reading about that, how they, they played at different places and you know got ripped off by people and then had to raise money to get back and uh. You know, what, this, is, this is like a whole thing, okay. Oh, it was it was a whole it was a whole thing, and I thought, God, yeah, there's a there's a whole lot of stuff we could do a, about him, but we'll 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 squeeze it into just uh, the the two things, focusing on a couple of things he was well known for. One was the the cricketer, but the other one was being an, an Aboriginal tracker, uh, where he was living living in the Wimmera region, and. Uh, there was three kids, Isaac Cooper, Jane Cooper, and Frank Duff, who went missing in the Mallee scrub um, at the edge of the little desert. They found their tracks the following day after they went missing, but a thunderstorm uh, occurred and destroyed the tracks. The official, sto- the official search was cancelled, and the newspapers reported the children as dead. But then uh, a neighbour of the Duffs suggested asking Dicker Dick and a couple of other uh, Watchabullock trackers for assistance. The parents who hadn't given up said, yep, let's give it a crack. So Dicker Dick and his two mates, um, Jerry and Fred, went oh, with him. Sorry, and- I know that's not funny, but his yeah, two Aboriginal mates called Jerry yeah. and Fred. Yeah, a bit yeah, that's right. Yeah, Dick and Dick and two other Watchabullock men, Jerry and Fred. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing they were Anglicised names. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just a wild guess there. Uh, went with him, and within hours, they'd got the kids' trail and later found the, the children. The kids were, you know, just about stuffed, but um, they found them. He got a, a, a hero's. They got a hero's welcome back. He was subsequently subsequently called King Richard, and uh, he and his uh, colleagues received a reward. Now, some of that reward went to their white employer to ensure it wasn't wasted. But um, you know, as was the bloody bias of the the time. Um, bias is probably too short or too uh, mild a word, but anyway. Uh, but they, you know, some went in their pocket and some uh, didn't immediately. So yeah, that was that was interesting. Everyone had given up. Newspapers said they're dead, but he went out there and yep, here's your kids back. So that was that really made his name as a cricketer. 1868, uh, the Australian Aboriginal uh, cricket team. Uh, went between May and October of that year, making them the first organised group of Australian sports people to travel overseas. Uh, another ten years before the Australian uh, ticket team. Yeah, so that that really surprised me. I didn't expect to read that, um, nor did I expect to hear that it was ten years before they the rest of them sort of got their arse into gear and and sent someone over. So. And the first organised group of Australians. Yeah, I thought that was very good. 
That is, especially like when you consider all of the the hurdles that these these yep. group of men would have had, you know, systematic racism and all of those sorts of things that you know, especially in the time period, it's it's oh, tr- yep. that's incredible that they were able to to organize it. That must have been very good, I'd imagine. Um, oh, they were well, according to what I report, and with the hurdles, I I haven't got noted down here, but I remember reading there were some fucking dickhead. Oh, sorry, we are we are we are in this. We we are um eighteen plus. Uh, there's some dickhead in uh, Victoria who brought in some rule that uh, you know Indigenous people couldn't be removed from the state without his and some other bureaucrat's permission. Oh and my that God. put the yeah yeah exactly. Don't you just want to do unkind things to them with uh, a cricket bat? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but fortunately, uh, the dickheads weren't in charge for for this one, and they made it over there. Uh, they played forty seven matches over there between May and October. They won fourteen, lost fourteen, and drew nineteen, which surprised a whole lot of people. So. As a record, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah, bloody oath. Uh, one of their outstanding players was Johnny Mullock. Uh, he scored 1,698 runs and took 245 wickets. And an admired English fast bowler of the time, George Tarrant, bowled to Mullock during a lunch interval and said, I've never bowled to a better batsman. Oh, wow. So, yeah, That's so cool. in answer to your question, they put on a pretty good show. In how is this? How is there not a movie about this? I know, I know. <laughs> I this, this is this is why I just I thought, oh yeah, Neil, I've heard of heard of that. That's in Victoria. I, I want to do something in the the state there. Just going through the Wikipedia, and I said, hang on, what? Who? <laughs> Dick a Dick? Never heard of him, and and it just opened up this whole thing. I'm. Completely with you. How have we never heard this before? I'm glad you didn't turn around to me and say, "Oh yeah, of course I know of him." And <laughs> <laughs> and what they would also do was after after playing the cricket, they'd put on an exhibition of, of boomerang and spear throwing. Um, yep. They also had a cricket ball throwing competition, and they were just beaten uh, by. Uh, was it? beaten by an emerging English all-rounder of star quality, 20-year-old W.G. Grace. And for the cricket aficionados, that name should ring a bell. He was one of the uh, cricket greats. And I'm saying that as if I know the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> but <laughs> my research indicates he's a very, very well-respected um, cricketer, particularly in the early days. He threw 118 yards, uh, dick-a-dick through. 114 yards. Uh, that's a, that's a long way. I, I, it, God, God, I'd be happy getting a third of that, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So that was, and one of the other things he did, he did, he was uh, renowned for his skill in traditional weapons, including the use of a a, a wadi and a, a a shield. Now his star act. In this exhibition, things afterwards, he would challenge men to hit him with a cricket ball, throw him for fifteen paces. So basically, he'd get uh, he'd get blokes up there 
right, grab the cricket ball and try and try and scone me with it. And he would use his um, his waddy and his shield, and he'd fend off these cricket balls. Now, if that wasn't impressive enough, he would uh, walk towards them and at some point suddenly yell and frighten frighten them. <laughs> but he would then have four people throwing balls at him. And he was hit only once and he said he wasn't quite ready that I think he's entitled to uh to do that. But he would have four blokes throwing cricket balls at him, trying to hit him, and he was just wet, just bouncing cricket balls off with his his shield and his waddy and not getting not getting hit. Where in fact where do I put this yeah had a uh, uh description here. Referred to as a famous athlete with a good running and jumping record, he was a fine, strapping, handsome fellow and must have had an eye like a hawk to escape the flying cricket balls as he did invariably. He would glance to leg with his shield, play in the slips with his leongly, and avoid the other two balls by leaping in the air, air straddling his legs or twisting his body like lightning. All this all done at once and quick as a thought. So, <laughs> so, yeah, just imagine people bloody trying to get him and just having no chance whatsoever. So yeah, that was that was that was one of the things that he put on there. Look, he after that he uh, the cricket tour his his health wasn't much chop. Um, he travelled back to his traditional country and the Ebenezer Mission. Uh, thought to have worked as a drover and fencer along the the Murray River. Uh, the white locals recognised Dicker Dick as a leader and an elder, and um, they presented him with an inscribed king plate, which you had mentioned. Ah, oh, uh, yes, a couple yeah, of, which yeah. I didn't know about. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. Um. He was then, uh, where are we? Sorry, yeah. So it was known as a number of names throughout his life. In addition to his birth name, uh, uh, Junga Jin Aganuk, and its spelling variants, also known as King Billy, King Dick, and Kennedy, in order of an Eden Hope uh, policeman he admired. And his descendants adopted Kennedy as their, their surname. Oh, that's cool. It's, yeah. Yeah, it was. So, look, he uh, even though there were some conflicting reports about his death, the commonly accepted version is that he died at the mission on 3rd of September, 1870. So that is the uh, Two Dicks Town Talk for Nil and the what I think was really interesting information about Dickadick, and I'd never heard of the bloke before, but there, yeah, it was... Uh, Something very, very uh, new to me. That's, honestly, that's so cool. What a life to have lived, especially when he lived it. Even if, if he did this yeah. this sort of stuff today, it would be impressive. But yep. doing it when he did it, absolute. Nothing held him back, you know. Um, bloody incredible. Uh, I don't know why this hasn't been made into a film yet. This would make a fantastic movie. Yep, I think so too. And you know that they were the first, you know, the first international Australian team. I, yeah, 
100% with you. I don't get why this hasn't been seized upon. Hopefully someone listening to this uh, can do it. <laughs> if you're listening to this and you're a famous film director, uh, there you go. That's a free one for you. Go and buy the rights and <laughs> um, <laughs> and and get it get it done. We love a bit of a, a Australian theatre. So yeah, bloody um, nice. very cool. I I liked that very much. <clears throat> so did I. Now be, something I a warm warm feeling. Something I don't like is Australia's transition to a cashless society. This raised some concerns about financial exclusion, privacy and safety. According to the Reserve Bank of Australia, cash accounted for just 13% of all payments made in 2022. The ability to pay by tapping our phones is partly driving the downward trend. All the all uh, your watch as well, your smartwatch. Yep. Um, cash payments plummeted during the first two years of the coronavirus pandemic, when online shopping spiked, and of course, a lot of places just went cashless altogether. I know your native state of Victoria was very big on that actually to my frustration when i was down there a lot of places just aren't accepting cash anymore which is really really frustrating uh according to the rba data seven percent of australians are what they classify as high cash high cash users uh those are who use cash for more than 80% or more of their in-person transactions. That's a 50% drop since 2019. And while the benefits of phasing out cash include increased convenience, transparency, and safety, the transition to a wholly digital economy risks excluding some sections of society. So we're going to have a lot of listeners that are probably listening going, eh, I don't use cash. Um, we know this. Statistically speaking, almost everyone that's listening to this is like, meh, I use my phone or my card or, or however you do it. It's more convenient for me. However, there's probably a handful, a very small, like three people that are listening, screaming uh, in their cars or, or at their phone, screaming, saying, I love cash. I need cash. I can't live without cash. And these are these are the people that we really need to think about in this um, because a cashless society doesn't benefit everyone. Who pays when a country goes cash free? The transition away from cash disproportionately affects disadvantaged groups such as people with disabilities and those who live in remote and regional Australia and have difficulty accessing digital financial services. As well as many of our elderly, the people over 65, can I say that? Are you elderly if you're over 65? Uh, they rely on cash. Nearly one in five qualify as a high cash user. The RBA data also shows that people from low-income households use cash more often than their more affluent counterparts. And while most Australians have access to a bank account, a small percentage of the population does not. Often described as the quote-unquote unbanked, this group comprises undocumented workers and others who lack identification, such as newly arrived immigrants. 
In Sweden, one of the first nations in the world to embrace a cash-free economy, concerns about financial exclusion among marginalized community saw a backlash against the shift to a cashlessness, particularly when many of the bank branches removed cash handling facilities altogether, which is something we're also seeing here in Australia. Many now believe that Sweden went too hard too early, removing cash handling infrastructure that is hard to replace and leaving vulnerable groups behind. Cash can also be a lifeline for victims of abuse who may have limited access to online financial services and cards. And we can't forget the people that care about their privacy. Regulators such as the International Monetary Fund are pushing to phase out cash, citing transparency as a major reason. (laughs) Very much so. But transparency, of course, is a double-edged sword. One person's transparency is another person's surveillance. And that's, honestly, that is how I feel about the International uh, Monetary Fund pushing this they call it transparency i call it surveillance interestingly according to the rba survey more than 25 percent of respondents report that they would experience inconvenience or hardship if cash was hard to access or use for some cash is a valuable method of payment and more a store of value representing security Banknote data from the RBA report 2022 bears this out. Although cash transactions are down, cash in circulation is up. According to the RBA, more than 2 billion banknotes are in circulation with a value of more than $102 billion, which amounts to about $4,000 in cash per Australian. So there are a lot of people with a lot of money because they either don't trust the banks or they want to have it here with me or for whatever reason, they're sitting on cash. Personally speaking, I do use cash for some transactions. I do like to... Facebook Marketplace is a bit of a weakness of mine, and I do quite enjoy buying and selling uh, used items. And that really only works in a cash society. It becomes very, very difficult in a cashless society. You know, we're talking small transactional amounts between strangers. It becomes quite difficult if you're having... I I understand there are uh, systems in place where you can, you know, easily transfer money between people just at a tablet phone and stuff like that. I, I get that, but... Try talking to an older bloke that lives in the bush that you're buying a piece of timber off. It's not going to happen. So I think (laughs) I would be very upset. I think there would be a really big pushback against the government if they did announce this, though I suspect this won't be an announcement. It will just be a quiet, uh, slow, insidious piece of bureaucratic crap that happens slowly over time and before we know it oh there is no cash anymore all the atms are gone (laughs) oh this this really gets under my skin i like cash yep yeah the other thing as well and i think it it can't be understated as well and i think a lot of i think a lot of people do this probably more than the rba realizes and i'm one of these people as well sometimes is i will I like to have cash so that it is easy for me to visually budget 
how much money I'm spending. So, like, if I go to the pub, I'm more often, I'll happily take some cash with me and then I know I've got this much, especially, you know, you had a couple of drinks and suddenly you're not aware of how much money you're spending. I think a lot of our listeners will probably relate to some extent to that situation. Before you know it, you got no money in your bank account and now you're eating ramen noodles for the rest of the week. Mm. Or you take some cash, you've got a hard limit, you know how much you're spending. I think that can't be understated as well. And I know a lot of young people do that as well. That's very interesting. Oh, that uh, that's yep. I can I can get on board with that. That makes a hell of a lot of sense. Look, c- cash for me allows me to have a personalized transaction with another human, um, and and arguably not not definitively, it has its roots in bartering. So for me, using cash has high social and instinctual worth, given how it's valued. And its tactile nature. There is, you can't beat counting out some cash and giving it to somebody, or having somebody else count out some cash and give it to you. There is a physical, tangible reality to that. And to transport it to the realm of surveilled, wizened freaking bureaucrats taking into account every moment of your day and everything that you've purchased it's just anathema to me i uh, that's why i said preach it you you were hitting all those those points for for me i I mean there's the there's the practical side that you were talking about about the disadvantaged groups the remote the remote people you know regional australia people who can't access the financials over 65 who are used to it um low income households using it i thought that one about the cash um being a lifeline for victims of abuse i until i had read the the article um I hadn't even thought about that. And one of the things that it was saying there is it's often a means of escape for people to be able to just take a little bit of cash, secrete it away, build up enough for the stash to leave their abusive relationship. I, you know, I yeah, thought that, 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 that was a, a very powerful um, metaphor for me. No, I think they're right because, and we've seen this um, even even in like celebrity circles, very very infamously uh, with Britney Spears, where she had no control over her finances, and it was all controlled, of course, digitally. Like yeah. I know that's a pretty extreme example, but it's a very uh, it's an example I think a lot of our listeners will will be familiar with, where someone in an abusive relationship, or, or maybe not necessarily abusive in in a physical sense, but just in an emotional sense, or um, still abusive. Yeah, like a, a you know over controlling or that sort of stuff, or or perhaps you know um, someone that's quite young and their parents are controlling their accounts and things like that. Yep. Having that cash gives them a degree of freedom that they otherwise wouldn't have um Mm. and i think honestly for me part of it as well is there is just something nice looking in your wallet and seeing a little bit of cash and being like yeah cool um and it was brought up by our users on the r slash australian subreddit about uh the fact that 
cash doesn't require power. When the lights go out, but you still want to buy, you know, a a non-perishable food item, a bag of flour, I guess. um, Yep. You can't do that with your card or your phone or your watch. You have to, you know, traditionally speaking, you could do it with your card, but I don't think anyone has the uh, the manual credit card machines anymore. No, um, God, it's been a long time since I've seen one of those. Yeah, I think they're all gone. Um, and I think the infrastructure around them are gone. So even if they do have one, I don't think they can use it. And da 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 da. Whereas cash, cash is king in that regard. You know, everyone is happy to take cash um, unless they're a bloody numpty. So that's really good. Though I do understand from a small business point of view, cash can be quite a liability. It it can, in some cases, cost you money to transport, to handle, to sort. I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an argument to be made there for smaller businesses to stop accepting cash in that regard. However, at the same time, I think it's also worth remembering that the, you know, the the FPOS or, or credit card machines that we see everywhere, uh, the banks charge merchant fees for those. Um, yep. They're generally passed on to to the customer, but at the same time, the sticker price generally doesn't change uh, if you pay cash or card. So. There is an incentive for small businesses to take cash because it's literally cheaper for them in that regard. Obviously, there's a balancing act there uh, in terms of of labor of of cash, but um, I think I think it's good to have a bit of diversity in our financial markets. As someone that is a financial planner by trade, I completely understand why the government doesn't like cash. Yep. They can't track everything. They can't necessarily tax everything. Um, and that's part of the reasons why I kind of like it as well. They don't need to know everything. Bloody, bloody earth. And that was the, the point that you were making about the, you know, the mongrels and the IMF pushing to phase out cash, citing transparency as a major reason. Uh, refrain from using some of the expletives I really want to do about that but it's interesting to notice the twisted inversion the word transparency and how they're trying to turn it around on the average person rather than than governments yeah the transparency will only be one way it'll be a financial panopticon there's no way it's going to go back on on them it'll fall once again on you and me and the average the average person and it just it, it boils my blood hearing that yeah, smug bureaucratic purse lip bloody talk about how things are going to be better. <laughs> oh god, I can't stand it. You just said one of the best phrases I've ever heard, and that is a financial panopticon. I love that so much because it's a perfect uh, metaphor, I guess, for what they're trying to say. Now, I also I really need to stress this to to our our listeners. I'm not uh, well. Neither of us are really uh, sort of conspiratorial type people uh we don't like the bureaucrats because of things like this the fact that they're you know i don't think the international monetary fund is trying to take over the world or anything like that it's some global world new world order or any nonsense like that however i do i don't like it when major international 
organizations can freely sit there in their, their offices and say, oh, well, you should do that. And it's like, well, actually, no, maybe this doesn't suit us and we don't need to do that. We already yeah, have a certain degree. Too. Yeah, and we, we have a, a, a level of transparency within our financial systems already. I know that they look at it from a very specific niche point of view in, in their defense from a non-conspiratorial mindset. They're looking at it going, well, we're trying to combat crime or we're trying to combat tax evasion or we're trying to do this and this and this. And it's the, the you know, it, what it boils down to is it's the low hanging fruit. Let's continue to attack the average Joe yep. to make sure that their lives are a little bit more difficult so we can pretend that we're being seeking more transparency. If they were really worried about transparency, this is not what they would be talking about. They would be talking about a lot more um, oversight into the international banking system. They'd be talking about a number of things. And I guess we, we don't really have time to get into this, you know, but... <laughs> I just want to yep. caveat that a little bit saying, you know, we're not sitting here screaming going that they're coming to, to, to you know, take your cash and, and uh, spy on you through your phone and the lizard people or anything weird like that. But <laughs> it, it is worth... They are turning... <laughs> yeah, that's it. They're, they're turning the frogs gay. I think it is worth... I've got the be, documents. You know, <laughs> I think it's worth... Being cautious about this sort of stuff. And at the end of the day, does the IMF really need to know uh, that I bought an Esky off a bloke and I used 40 bucks cash? Like, you know what I mean? There's a certain level where there's a certain level of granular transparency that is basically redundant. It's pointless. And let us, I'm going to die on this hill. I support cash in our society in our culture i think it's a part of what makes australia great um yep and i would be very upset to see it go and let's hope we don't go down in history as the last generation of cash users <laughs> speaking of australian history what happened this week in australian history i come from a land of love. This week in Australian history, we're covering August 24th to August 30th. August 24th, the town of Holbrook, New South Wales, was renamed from Germantown. 2001, the Tampa crisis begins when the MV Tampa, which MV stands for Merchant Vehicle, Merchant Vessel, is that correct? You know what? Now that you've put me on the spot and asked me that, I'm pretty sure that's what it means, but I don't actually know. Oh, okay. Well, God, you'd, you'd know more than me, so I'm, I'm happy that I didn't know that. Uh, when the uh, MV Tampa tries to help a boatload of rep refugees, mainly from Afghanistan, um, it was a roll-on, roll-off container um, for a Norway-based firm. Uh the crisis, just to, in in a nutshell, in uh, two thousand and one, uh, the crew rescued four hundred and thirty three refugees in or international waters, but the Australian government refused permission for them to disembark in Christmas Island, uh, where the Afghans wanted passage to. There's a whole lot of argy bargy on that. The Australian government ended up uh, sending in uh, the special air forces. Reg, sorry, Special Air Service Regiment onto the ship and taking control of it. 
Eventually, 150 of the uh, refugees were taken in by New Zealand. The rest went to, most of the rest went to Nauru. A few of them just said, this is all just ridiculous and went back to Afghanistan. And eventually, most of them ended up in New Zealand. So I don't know if we'll ever do a deeper dive into the Tampa, but have a look up online if you, you want. It was in some respects an ignominious uh, portion of our history. August 25th, 1824, the Legislative Council of New South Wales sits for the first time. 1903, the Judiciary Act uh, receives royal assent, which created the High Court of Australia. 81, the Rembrandt Fire in Rembrandt Hotel Fire in King's Cross kills 19 people. That's in, in Sydney. August 26, 2005, the inaugural A-League National Football Soccer Season begins. Not really that long ago in the scheme of things, but... Um, no, it was... Yeah. Uh, it, it did have a, 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 like, you know, professional league prior to that. I can't remember what it was called. It might have just been the National League, something like that. Um, hmm. but, but the A-League itself, you know, rebranded and that's what it is now and, and everything like that. It's not, it's not long ago. No, it's not. Let's light a flare to the memory of that starting. Um, August 27th, 1908, uh, Sir Don Bradman, the Australian cricketer, is born. Uh, but he wasn't the first one over to uh, England. Is no, now, no, he wasn't. <laughs> he definitely <No>. wasn't. <laughs> 1976, Mark Webber, the Australian race driver, is also born. August 28th. Uh, 1933, the Brisbane newspaper, The Courier Mail, first appears, and still going strong. Well, still going. Don't know about strong, but still going. Uh, 1941, on August 28th, Arthur Fadden becomes the 13th Prime Minister of Australia. August 29th. 1882, the Australian cricketers win the Ashes for the first time. A bit earlier than what I thought on the the Ashes, uh, particularly in in what we've uh, found out earlier on. 1998, the Liberal Party government of Tony Rundle is voted out in Tasmania and replaced with an ALP government of Jim Bacon. And... 2001, Graham Shirley Strawn, lead singer of the 70s group Skyhooks, killed in a helicopter accident. I don't, you probably, oh, bit, oh well, you'd, you'd know Skyhooks, but you probably, it wasn't really your gener, generation, but I don't know, remember you, you, do you remember Shirley Strawn dying then? No, I, yeah. um, I was just—I made that noise because I was like, "Shit, there's a bit of there's a bit of helicopters crashing at the moment." Um, it seems I, I, I've been in a number of helicopters, and every time I've thoroughly enjoyed myself and and felt very safe, I should say. Yeah. However, it just seems like a bit of a trend that helicopter accidents seem to take quite a lot of famous people with them. So, well, uh, yes, yep, you you you're quite right. Um. August 30, 1916, uh, rescue of the 22 men in the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Exhibition who remained on Elephant Island. Um, That expedition 
uh, was considered to be the last major expedition of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, and it was conceived by Ernest Shackleton, Sir Ernest Shackleton. Uh, they were trying to make a land crossing of the Antarctic continent. But basically, their, their ship, the Endurance, uh, got trapped in yeah. the, um, the, the, the ice, ice, crushed the ship, ship sank. Uh, the 28 uh, men uh, were stuck on the, the ice. They spent months in uh, a camp um, as the ice continued its northward drift. And they used uh, lifeboats uh, from the, the ship, reached Elephant Island, and Shackleton and five other blokes then made a journey of 1,300k, that's 800 mile in the old money, in an open jo- open boat to um, uh, Upper East South Georgia. South Georgia the- Island, yeah. Yeah. And from there, he set Shackleton sent back, or was able to arrange and sent back a rescue of the men who ranged, who remained on Elephant Island, and brought them home without loss of life. I think impressive. All round. Yeah, there's there's a really good film uh, about it as well, yeah. and I think I think it might just be called Shackleton. Hang on, let me look it up. Um, and. No, maybe it's called The Endurance. Um, but it's it's a very okay. good film. Um, definitely worth watching. It's true. This is one of those incredible human stories that deserves its own film. Uh, look, and that there was out without loss of life. Very impressive. Uh 1992, the Sydney Harbour Tunnel officially opens, and I remember going for a walk with that through with my dad and my wife. They had it uh, like open for pedestrians to to check it out, so that was that was pretty fun to walk through there. Um, now they all get all shitty about you if you're walking through the tunnel. And the oh no, yeah, don't walk <laughs> yeah. in the tunnel. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 1999 to finish off uh, this week in Australian uh, history. 1999 on August 30, East Timor votes for independence from Indonesia. In the violence that follows, Australia is a major contributor of peacekeeping forces. Um, major taker arguably of mineral rights but let's go with the positive one on that and say they're a major contributor of of peacekeeping forces and uh that finishes up this week in australian history so how do you feel after that yeah ending on East Timor, I served with a number of guys that were part of the peacekeeping force over in East Timor. And, um, yep. you know, I heard some stories about some not, you know, some some good stuff and some not so good stuff. And um, uh, I also had a friend that was involved in a, a helicopter crash. This is, helicopters crash oh. a lot <laughs> um, yeah. uh, over there. And that wasn't wasn't very good and, and all that sort of stuff. So Australia definitely has a complicated history with some of its neighbours, uh, whether, whether good or bad, probably more bad than good. Um, yeah, and, and mineral rights, uh, the petroleum in the Timor Sea and da 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 But yeah. anyway, I, it makes me thirsty, actually. <laughs> Might be time for a beer. 
So, as I take a swig of a beer. Yeah, uh, I, I thought you, I thought, <laughs> I, I thought in addition to, in addition to the beer opening, you're uh, actually taking a swig. Uh, this this week's Forex Bottle Top question also wasn't on a Forex Bottle Top, uh, but it is a good one. And this is one I didn't know. And you, this is going to annoy me if you know this, because this is something either you're going to be like, oh my gosh, what? Or you're going to be like, you're going to know it straight away. So where was the Australian actress Nicole Kidman born? I feel like I should know this. I think she keeps this quiet, if I'm honest. Oh, she keeps it quiet. Oh, okay. Well, right. So, God, for some reason I had, um, oh, what's that place over, just just over the border in Queensland? I'm a dentist fellow. Um, Oh, was it? Well, okay. Give me a state. It's not in Australia. Oh, isn't it? (laughs) No. That's why I was very surprised. She is not born in Australia. Oh, wow. Well, look, I suppose if we've claimed it as Australian, it has to be somewhere in New Zealand. It's not New Zealand. Wow. Well, who else? Do, who else do we claim? Um, you know what? I have, I have, I have no idea. I'm so glad because if you went, oh, it's this, I'd be like, I was going to be disappointed. But I didn't know this. I suspect she keeps this quite quiet because she was born on the island of Hawaii. She was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, the United States. Huh. Well, did she have have Australian parents, and that's yeah. where they happened to? Be? Yeah. Wow. So she she is Australian. She grew up here, um, uh, and yeah. So she just was born in Hawaii, apparently. Oh, bloody Yanks coming over here and taking our jobs, <laughs> <laughs> taking our our actresses' jobs and and everything like that. So, um. Yeah, her, her parents, she's obviously Australian parents, uh, and they they lived in in Honolulu, Hawaii. Oh. Um, her mother was a, a nursing instructor, um, and her father was a, a biochemist. Um, and they, she actually holds dual citizenships, of course, because if you are in America, I believe this is still the case. If you're born in America, you get citizenship. Um, and yeah, they moved back to, to Sydney. She grew up in Sydney. Um, but yeah, she was born in Hawaii, which is, I don't know. It just kind of blew my mind. I, I, I saw this, uh, bit of trivia and I was like, Ooh, that'll make a good question because I never would have guessed it. Nope. Never, ever. I I would have done exactly what you thought of if she's not born in Australia, she had to be born in New Zealand. Because that's how the world works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're from New Zealand, you pretend to be Australian, and 
that's how it works in Hollywood. That's Hollywood, baby. <laughs> so, um, wow, that's really that's really interesting. I don't. I can almost be assured I wouldn't have got to wouldn't have gotten to Hawaii. I might have guessed US um, if we'd have you know been playing two hundred and twenty questions, but I don't think <laughs> I would have got Hawaii. Um. No, no way. I would never have, never have picked it. But um, so, on that bombshell, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the R slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the R slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out immensely with the algorithm. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thank you and good night. See you, DK. See you later.